Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to the Daily Digest from Football Digest with me, Ned Keating. Joining me this morning once again is Connor Bromley uh, as we take a look at the back pages on this Friday morning. Uh, Connor, we've got teams back in pre-season training, teams now starting to work with new players, new managers, uh, some players getting new contracts this morning as well as what we're going to touch on in the next 20 minutes or so. Um, But we're going to start with Man United uh, on the back page uh, of the Daily Star this morning and and stories that have also been covered uh, in in the Mirror and the Express uh, regarding Eric Ten Hag looking to... Uh, how do we put this? End the culture of leaks at Manchester United. Um, it, it's something that we've seen in in recent years, that uh, and especially last season. Um, you just see it down the side there for anyone that's watching on 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 this stream, uh, just down the right hand left hand side, even there. Uh, but there's been this culture of leaks at Man United. I think even last season as well, it seemed to be a lot of dressing room leaks um, during during Ralph Rangnick's short interim period. So I suppose it's probably a good thing for the new manager to, to try and get this one out of the way early doors and and lay down, not a marker as such, but put down his mark and, and say that this will not be tolerated going forward. Yeah, there's there's a definite issue where at Man United, there's a, a culture of it. It just seems like every, you know, week, particularly last season, it was just every week there was leaks coming out. There was things to do with training, training brawls. People not happy with Ralph Ranić. People not happy with Alikona Solskjaer. It was um, consistent. And I think, you know, that's probably the the main thing that Ten Hag needs to sort because if you've got people leaking things in the dressing room, that suggests you've not got a happy dressing room. You know, clearly there's a, a an, an issue there with, certain sections of the the players camp I mean you don't know if it's one player leaking things if it's five players if it's a lot of different players obviously they've lost um, a few players who were you know seemingly unhappy and Jesse Lingard was a player that was unhappy and I think a lot of people kind of speculated that he could be a source of it Paul Pogba another player who who didn't seem particularly happy uh, last season you know he's gone as well now but I think it's a it, it is a major issue and if Man United are going to progress then, you know, you think back to the Alex Ferguson days, you know, Roy Keane did an interview once on MUTV, their own in-house um, production and, you know, hammered into the team and he was axed after that and he was a Manchester United captain. So that's how tight-knit it used to be under Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, they didn't let anything slip out. And now it's just, yeah, we'll just tell the press anything, anything that's happening, anything interesting, we'll just pass that information on. And that's not good for Manchester United. Good for us, <laughs> but not good for Manchester United. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in terms of another major story that Eric Ten Hag is going to have to deal with in the first few weeks of his Man United uh, tenure, obviously they're flying out to Australia for a pre-season tour, or, or sorry, the Far Eastern Australia for a pre-season tour in the coming days. But it looks like Cristiano Ronaldo won't be part of that touring party. A lot of speculation remains over his future. He, it, it, all, by all accounts, he wants to leave this summer. Just one year back at Old Trafford, it's not worked out. He has his eyes set on playing in the Champions League. Um Throughout his career, he's never not played in the Champions League. So I suppose he wants to kind of keep that record going. Um, we expected that it was going to be a busy, difficult betting in period for Eric Ten Hag. But with this idea that he wants to plug the league, is now obviously a man who is probably, you know, bigger than the club. I'm sure Man United fans would love to disagree with me in the comments section on this. But 
it does feel like he's almost bigger than the club. And and to deal with that in your first couple of weeks when you're trying to kind of set the stool out and restore this this huge name, this huge club to its former glories, there, there would have been nicer bedding in periods potentially for Eric Ten Hag, but he's, he's not necessarily going to get that. Yeah, and, you know, we can talk, you know, at length about whether or not Ronaldo fits into the Man United team, whether or not he helped them last season or hindered them, you know, his arrival, it, it certainly hindered the progress of a lot of the Man United players. You know, Marcus Rashford had a terrible season last year and Jaden Sancho struggled. And is that because of Ronaldo or was that going to happen anyway? It does feel like his arrival has had both positives and negatives. In terms of a missing out on preseason, obviously we all you know saw the story towards the end of last season where um, he'd lost a child, you know, and it has been family reasons is one of the reasons that's came out for why he's potentially not going. So, you know, you don't know necessarily what's going on in his personal life, but I think it's a difficult one for Manchester United because I think he isn't necessarily the player that they need. However, obviously there's a huge relationship between Ronaldo and the Manchester United fans. And I think the optics aren't great if Cristiano Ronaldo leaves because, you know, he's so associated with that club and this isn't meant to be the club that he loves more than any other one. Um, so certainly if they were to, to lose him to a Premier League rival, there would be, you know, huge question marks uh, over that. But I think losing him also means they have to replace him and they'll have to spend money on a striker. I know Darwin Nunes was, was heavily linked and that seemingly hasn't quite gone anywhere. So that's an issue as well. You know, they, they've got to plug so many gaps in that team. You know, that it's a it's a team that's dysfunctional. It's a team that needs a lot of work and needs a lot of money spent on it. And losing Ronaldo and having to replace a superstar striker like that, you know, that's going to take a huge dent into the, the transfer budget. And, you know, Eric Ten Hag, you know, it's been reported in the mirror that he was expecting Ronaldo to be part of the team next season. He planned for that. So to lose him, you know, that's a that's a real hammer blow to Manchester United. It's a real hammer blow at this stage when the season's literally, you know, a month away, having to replace a player like him if he is to leave. And also, if he doesn't leave, he's not going to have had a proper preseason. We're already at the stage now where if he's going to miss this tour, he's not going to have a full preseason. Now I know he's a he's a machine and he probably is still working out and he's probably still going to be in tip top condition, but he's not going to have the ideas of how Eric Ten Hag plays, you know, installed in him because he's not. A, going to have been there in training so it's it's an interesting situation it's wanting to monitor I think if something's going to happen with him you'd think it would happen sooner rather than later um, I, I wouldn't see it dragging to, to deadline day I think Man United will need a resolution Ronaldo will want a resolution and the teams that are buying him will want him in before the season starts I said to you that I would expect Man United fans to tell me that Ronaldo's not bigger than the club. And of course, we do have it in the comments from Syed Kuman saying that he is indeed not bigger than the club. I would agree uh, with I am. <laughs> He's not bigger than Manchester United. <laughs> One man that they have managed to bring in, though, so far, uh, the first signing of Eric Ten Hag's reign, uh, Tyrell Malassia from Feyenoord. Um, obviously, a Dutch player, player that Eric Ten Hag would have seen a lot of uh, close hand, probably a lot more than, than we obviously have in this podcast. Um, left back suggest then that he's not entirely sold on the left-back options that he had at the club. Uh, Eric Tarnhaug not sold on Luke Shaw, Alex Tellez filling in there a lot last season uh, towards the back end when Luke Shaw was injured and and huge question marks over his ability to actually defend, which for a defender you would, would say is quite high up the list of priorities at least. Um, but a young man, relatively low fee, 
given the markets that we're used to at the minute, is this a sign of where Man United, we should expect them to be looking at, you know, players that maybe aren't necessarily, of course, Milassia could come in and, and could be a great start, but players that aren't necessarily for the here and now, it's it's for a few years, perhaps down the road. Yeah, and I think what's the fee? Twelve million pounds. You know, it's it's uh, in football terms these days, twelve million pounds, especially for a club like Man United, isn't isn't a, a huge fee. Um, I think it's probably going to be quite a smart signing. You know, Eric Ten Hag will know him quite well and probably believes that there's a chance that he'll he'll fit straight away in at Manchester United. The the fullback options completely left and right back aren't good enough. You know, Luke Shaw has been so up and down since he's arrived at Manchester United. It just hasn't kicked on to the player we expected. Alex Tellers, as you mentioned, isn't a very good defender. I don't think he's a particularly good player altogether. And then you look on the right-hand side, Arouan Basaka was never a good fit for Manchester United and has struggled from the moment he arrived. And Diego Dalot, again, would he get into the... You know, would he get into the West Ham team? Probably not. Where whereabouts would Diego Dalot fit in most Premier League teams? You know, I, I think he'd be struggling to get in any top half team. So you've got fundamental issues all over the defensive side of the field. I mean, even the centre back options, you know, aren't the best. I know they've got Varane, who you'd hope would have a good season. Um, but Malassia coming in, you just hope that it's I hope it's a player that can defend. You know, that that's what Manchester United need. They need they don't need a player that's gonna be bombing up and down the left side and then, you know, leaving the winger free to cause chaos. They need somebody who's actually capable of defending and, you know, going up against a tricky winger like, you know, Riyad Mahrez. Is he going to get torn to shreds or can he actually hold his own, which is the level Manchester United strive to be at? And you'd worry playing in the Dutch league whether or not you could do that straight away, but you'd hope that Ten Hag is spotted him and, and thinks that there's a good chance and, and the fee's a good one you know 12 million pounds is a, a decent fee to pay for a player particularly if they're going to start every single game um but yeah I, I don't I don't know where to sit on this one I doubt Man United fans are overly excited about this signing yeah but Rome wasn't built in a day I suppose so obviously you do need to the, the foundations at least we'll, we'll give him time we'll see how he gets in <laughs> Moving from one Europa League club to another now in Arsenal. Um, and, and the story, so obviously this is a back page review, but, but given that we're in Wimbledon and Cameron Norrie uh, is into the semi-finals, we have had to delve away from the back pages into inside uh, the, the pages as well, but still among the sports section at least. Um, but in the mirror, uh, John Cross reporting um, a nice little chat with, with Gabriel Jesus and kind of how Arsenal will look to use him uh, this season uh, and the kind of hopes and aims that they, they kind of have for him going forward. Um, Connor, there seems to be a, a bit of expectation on uh, on the shoulders of Gabriel Jesus following this move, that he will be the striker that they've kind of been crying out for. Obviously, they had that in Pierre-Emerick Bamiyang a couple of years back when he would be a consistent goal scorer, won the Golden Boot. Um, but his, his last kind of 18 months, maybe two years or so at Arsenal, it didn't really kind of go to plan for him. So is Jesus the man that's going to be getting the goals for Arsenal, firing to uh, firing him hopefully back into the Champions League? I think he's certainly a Mikel Arteta striker. Um, I feel like that's the area since Arteta has been in that they've struggled in. Lacazette, it hasn't. His goal scoring record really since Arteta came in hasn't been good enough. Aubameyang, there's been so many issues with him off the pitch, and obviously they decided to move on from him in January. And Eddie Nketiah, 
seems to have actually been the best fit out of all the strikers they've had, but he was very reluctant to play him, whether or not it's inexperience or just a contract issue last season. And now it feels like with Gabriel Jesus coming in, Arsenal have a striker they can rely on. There is issues where maybe he's not clinical. Um, I know that statistically he hasn't been hitting his expected goals totally, generally going um, quite a bit under what he's expected to score. But at Manchester City, he also wasn't playing through the middle all the time, particularly last season. He was often on the wing, often not used in his, his, his proper position. And I think he'll probably thrive being the man finally at a club and being the one who has the expectation. I think he'll thrive on that because at Man City, he's always played second fiddle to Sergio Aguero. And even when Man City got rid of Aguero, he's never really had the trust. It's always felt like everyone's went, well, Man City need another striker because Gabriel Jesus, A, one striker isn't enough, but B, he's not going to lead the line for the best team in Europe. I think it's a good move. I think it's a good move all around. And I think Arsenal will probably get the best out of them. They'll see a lot of the ball. They create a lot of chances. And the, the, the lack towards the end of the last season probably missed out on the top four because it didn't have somebody reliable to finish off chances. And I think while Jesus can be wasteful, I think he probably is, if he plays every game next season, going to get somewhere in the region of 15 to 20 goals. And that's better than what Arsenal got last season. So that that's... You know, that's a chance for them to get in the top four because if they had a 20 goal a season striker last year, they probably would have just about pipped Spurs to the post. Yeah. Um, in terms of Jesus himself, you, you kind of touched on it there that he kind of played here, there, and everywhere for Man City. Never really nailed down A, a starting spot or B, a starting position as well, if that makes sense. That that he was kind of used on the wing, full nice striker. He never knew whether or not he was coming or going. At Arsenal, it will be expected that he is, as you said, they're going to be the main man, the guy playing through the middle. You know, almost like the fox in the box, really, kind of just there to finish off the, the flowing moves. So whilst it might take a little bit of time to adapt potentially to that, not so much a new system, but just kind of getting used to playing back through the middle again, do you think he will benefit as a player as well from, as you said, there being the man, knowing where his position is, knowing that week in, week out, whenever he plays, he is going to be through the middle playing as a, an out-and-out number nine? Yeah, and I think as well that the trust that he'll have with Arteta, you know, knowing him, he's going to a, to play for a coach who he knows, and that'll be you know massively important as well. Presumably, they've got a, a very good relationship for Arteta. Spent forty five million pounds on him, so I think it will benefit him greatly as a player as well. And also to be in a team where you know, you know, Man City, they've got the ball seventy percent of the time against most teams in the Premier League, whereas Arsenal, you know, they're not as good as Man City but maybe he will benefit from being in a team where maybe they don't have the ball as much and maybe there's more counter-attacks and maybe it's not as precise as Pep Guardiola football. You know, maybe he'll, he'll benefit you know quite a bit from that. Uh, I, I think this is a, a really good move for, for Arsenal and Jesus. I think it's a, a transfer that makes a lot of sense. Often you look at players and think, you know, do they fit with that club? And I look at Jesus and I look at Arsenal and I think, I think that's a really good, um, match there and I, th- I think it's it's good business and even the the fee 45 million pounds it is a lot of money but I don't think it's an extortionate amount of money I don't think that um, you know that's a, a too inflated a fee I think Arsenal probably got a, a decent price there for a player that could be good for 20 goals a season for the next five six seven seasons 
Just finally, before we go this morning, Connor, another story, um, but this time regarding Liverpool. Uh, Joe Gomez signing a new long-term contract at Anfield. Uh, there had been speculation that he was looking, well, maybe not himself looking to move, but there had been speculation that there were other clubs uh, interested in signing him this summer. And I suppose when you look at last season, it, it, it's little surprise that there was clubs sniffing around. You know, for, for a player who's a former England international, we know how... The quality that he possesses, we've seen it in the past. He's just been unfortunate with injuries around major tournaments. Um, but last season seemed to fall quite a bit way down uh, the pecking order at Anfield behind Ibrahima Kanate as well after he joined. So you wouldn't have blamed him for perhaps looking at the exit or trying to restart his career, reinvigorate his career, especially as we said, you know, kind of uh, looking towards a major tournament in November, maybe trying to get minutes in before uh, Qatar to try and kind of almost be a bolter into Gareth Southgate's England squad. Um, but as it is, he's, he's tied himself down to a new contract at Anfield. Is this a sign that he does see his long-term future at Liverpool or is this more to make sure that Liverpool, if they were to sell him, can add a little bit more value onto that fee? Yeah, I think it's probably probably a mix of that and he probably wouldn't get the wage that Liverpool are paying anywhere else. You know, I think Joe Gomez is a player that a couple of seasons ago, maybe two or three seasons before before he had his big injury, I think most people thought that he was going to be um, possibly a long-term answer to Liverpool at, at the back. Since then, I don't know how many games he played last season, but I'd be shocked if he featured more than 10, 15 times. He's definitely way down the pecking order. But he's probably looked at it and thought, well, nobody else is probably going to pay us this level of money. Um, and it secures his future. And, you know, I think often when we look at contracts and players signing them, we don't necessarily think about, well, what's the impact of him jumping? I don't know what the figures are, but say he was on £40,000 a week. Maybe Liverpool have put him on £60,000, £70,000 a week. You know, that's a big jump in money. So it, it's no surprise that he signed it. You'd hope that he's got assurances that he's going to play because you know, for centre-backs for England, it would be nice if Joe Gomez was an option and was playing regular football, certainly heading into the World Cup, but it's difficult to see him getting in ahead of, you know, Virgil van Dijk, obviously, but also Joe Matip and Ibrahima Kanate. You'd think he's the fourth choice centre-back at Liverpool, would be my guess. Um, That means he's going to play League Cup games, FA Cup games, maybe the odd Champions League game if Liverpool feel like they're comfortably through. So he's not going to play a lot. So... It is it is interesting, but I think it must just be that he wants the financial security and Liverpool have probably to- outlined what he's going to be doing, which is playing fourth choice or filling in when somebody's injured. And he, he must be happy with that. Personally, I would have liked to have seen him maybe try his hand somewhere else and maybe, you know, move to, I think, Newcastle were linked to them. It would have been good to see him maybe go there because he would have featured regularly and they're a club with a lot of ambition. Um. But, you know, who am I to second guess? I mean, if somebody offered me that level of money, I'd happily set a Liverpool's bench every week all season. I suppose, and this is probably a question across um, definitely the, the, the kind of clubs at the top end of the Premier League. Liverpool could have easily sold him, got a lot of money for him this summer. Um, and as you said, they're a fourth choice option at centre-back. And, you know, if it's fourth choice, then you're probably only there in, in case of emergencies, really. And they could have perhaps gone through this season with Nat Phillips as, as fourth choice, for example. Would have got more from selling Joe Gomez than they would do for Nat Phillips, I'm, I'm sure of that. But is this a sign that the clubs at the top end 
because their players are going to be playing in the World Cup as well. They're going to be playing so many games at the start of the season and then, you know, to try and get ahead before we go off to that World Cup break. Um, I was speaking with Mark Jones on the show a couple of weeks back about the, that it's almost, the running almost starts from the first day of the season, such is the nature of this campaign this year and how it's all structured. That is Liverpool keeping Gomez rather than letting him go, trying down to a new contract, indicative of a sign that clubs this year are actually going to need a, a large squad if they want to compete at the top level. Of course, they always need large squads because you need them for injuries, for form, for everything else. But as, as I said, such are the weird, uh, you know, intimate details of this campaign as such and, and the way that they're trying to cram in almost half a season before we even get to November just so that we have that break before the World Cup. And we're talking domestic cup, Champions League, Premier League. These teams actually need top quality players throughout the squad from one to four to whoever to, you know, bench and reserves and everything else. Yeah, I think I think that could be it, but the schedule is relentless anyway. I mean, Liverpool last season competed on on four fronts. They played what was it, sixty three games? I think they played the most you could possibly play. Um, and Klopp did tinker with the squad a little bit, but for the important games, he, he never really, you know, changed his squad all that much. Particularly centre back parents, very. Very rarely did he, he he move away from Van Dyke with Kanai or Matty. That was kind of a mainstay. Not often you can recall times where he rested them players. And I just don't see with the, the stakes so high that even though they are playing a lot of games and players will need rest, that you can afford to tinker with your team all that much. It's like a case of you play who's fit. Uh, I do think Klopp more than any other manager does tinker with his team a little bit more to keep players happy. I know Salah last season often was was on the bench towards the end of the year uh, while he was nursing injury. But I still think if Liverpool play 60 games this season, Virgil van Dijk's going to play 45 of them. And Matt Eaton and Kanati will probably fill in at least 80% of the time next to him. So he's not going to play all that much. I still think he's going to be limited at most to 15, 20 appearances. It's just whether or not you know you're happy with that and you're willing to sacrifice the chance to to play a lot of football. But on the flip side of that, maybe Gomez is looking at it as can he get ahead of Matty Benkanati in the pecking order? Well, he's got the talent to do it. He certainly could do it. And if there's an injury, then he gets in and he plays well. And Jurgen Klopp will play the players that are playing well. So maybe he's gambling that actually after a few months, maybe he can be the player to go next to Virgil van Dijk. And maybe he's betting on himself, which is an ambitious move. And maybe he also knows that if he bets on himself this season, then maybe it doesn't work out. The next season he's maybe been told, yes, you can move next summer if we've not played you all that much. So maybe he's just taking a gamble on himself. And if he is, that's a you know, that's quite a, a bold move with the competition he's against. But he's, he's certainly got the talent um, to play for Liverpool every week. We've seen that before with him. Just whether or not he's able to to do that this season. Of course, uh, we, we'll we'll just have to wait and see on that front, I suppose. Um, Connor, thanks so much for joining us this morning, as ever. Um, of course, you can keep across all the latest uh, from the summer transfer window across the Daily Mirror, Daily Star, and Daily Express, as well as all of Reach's regional titles. But for now, it's goodbye. <laughs> 